be prepared to be inspired, heartbroken, to laugh, and be motivated to action with stories, voices, and perspectives that rarely hit mainstream media. Hi, my name is Cheryl, host of the Global Citizenship and Equity podcast, where I feature leaders, practitioners, community leaders who are taking us forward in the 21st century. This podcast elevates the perspectives that shake up the status quo and allow us to feel into what it means to be human in a vulnerable society and on a very angry planet. This episode features Madeline Lim, director of the Queer Women of Color Media Arts Project. She is an award-winning filmmaker and activist and the recent recipient of the Lifetime Achievement in Community Building Award by the Chinese Cultural Center of San Francisco. In this episode, I dive into an honest conversation with Madeline Lim about her film Sambal Balachan in San Francisco that was banned by the Singapore government in the mid-1990s, and only recently, over two decades later, was screened in Singapore under strict perimeters. This interview also dives and journeys through the dark 80s in Singapore and what it was like to be a lesbian teenager back then. She describes her early activism with the Singaporean feminist organization AWARE, her struggles with the Singapore government, and her eventual decision to move to the United States, where she would carve significant milestones in queer women of color film history. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me uh, for this conversation. And uh, let's see, uh, I am Madeline Lim and I uh, founded QuackMap, Queer Women of Color Media Arts Project about 20 years ago in San Francisco. Uh, I am an independent filmmaker. I am currently working on a, my first feature length documentary about Jewel Gomez. I know you're so many things, it's hard to summarize your bio in just a couple of lines. But let's let's talk a little bit about how we met. And, and this is what I remember from 22 years ago. I was, I think, 18 years old. And I had just come out of the closet, nice, nice little closet that I had. And I was a student at the University of San Francisco. I, as I was Googling for more resources on, oh no, it was good, not Google then, probably web crawler. <laughs> I was do, using web crawler, found your film and in, in an interview you did with someone else. And I wanted to interview you for the Singaporean newsletter on campus. So I met you at the Straits Cafe, which doesn't exist anymore on Geary Street, which is really close to where you live. And I interviewed you, published it, on campus and the Singaporeans on campus really appreciated it. So that's the first time I met you. You have been a significant role model in my queer life, obviously. I think I just needed to see role models that it's possible being happy, being queer and Singaporean. <laughs> just when you're out 18 years old, I think having you 
just meeting you, I think made a significant part of my coming out years and, and it's made it easier for sure. But I think you were the one who took leadership on, around that. And so a lot of gratitude, but let's start from the very beginning. Well, <laughs> thank I, you, Cheryl. That, that's really, really sweet. Thank you. Yeah. I don't think you ever told me that before, but. Well, now, now you know. <laughs> so let's take the story back to our homeland, Singapore. And you were born even before Singapore became a country, I think a year before. One year, it became that's a right. So I am older than the country. You are older than the country. So Singapore became a country. And tell us about your childhood and, you know, primary school, secondary school, before you moved to the United States, what was it like living back home? Sure. So I was born in, born and raised in Singapore. I didn't, I left when I was 23, actually. So I was already, you know, an adult. Um, I went to school at Convent of the Holy Infant Jesus. Uh, basically, I was in Catholic school from the time I was, you know, primary one, I was six or seven until, um, Catholic Junior College, which is 18. And I remember, I think even before I turned 10, I remember trying to sort out um, sort of my sexual orientation. You know, I didn't really have words for it. It was just sort of like vague notions of who I was being attracted to. And I think when I was 13, I was furiously trying to find some kind of information. I was just looking everywhere to get a hold of news articles or something that I could get my hands on because this would have been 1977 in Singapore and there was no information whatsoever, right? The country was just barely, you know, <laughs> a little more than 10 years old and it was very much focused on country building in that sense, right? Like there were programs for if you wanted to be a teacher or a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer. And I was really just, for, my, for me, my journey was I was really trying to figure out who I was. And my stepfather is, it was, he passed away. He was a, a white European German man. And, you know, very often we would have journalists coming into our home and um, having conversations. And I was really trying to talk to them about, is there any information on being gay, right? And I would look through, you know, like the encyclopedia. You know, back then there was no social media, there was no internet, there was no email, nothing, right? And Singapore was very strict about limiting um, the information. I remember Cosmopolitan is one of those magazines, you remember? And um, I think it was maybe in the 80s, there was a tiny little review of a lesbian book in Cosmopolitan. And I remember vividly that the government took every single issue of the, from, from the newsstands, cut out that tiny little review from the magazine and put it back on the newsstand and then sold it, right? So that, that was how tight that kind of um, control that it had. And so I remember frantically looking, you know, for any kind of information to understand myself and and who I was and um and I remember you know being 13 and already feeling like wow you know society the way it was didn't you know I couldn't find my place in it you know like there was no room for me in it there was nothing that existed at that time and I think it was and and well just to 
talk just to kind of convey the story chronologically. What happened was I was actually in a relationship with my girlfriend at that time, um, which lasted a little bit over a year. And she was one year younger than I was. And, you know, it was an all girls school and we were in a relationship and we were, <laughs> it, it was a Sunday. We had gone to church and we happened to go back to school to hang out, right? Because it was a, a place where we could hang out. And we were in the first aid room when the principal walked in because, you know, it's a, it's a convent. So the, the nun, the principal was an Irish nun and she lived uh, in, the in the compound and she walked in on us. And so basically she, we had guilty looks on our faces because we had been, you know, close, um, I think sitting next to each other or something like that. And um, she basically put two and two together and figured out we were lesbians and we were in a relationship together. And so she told that to the vice principal and the vice principal outed me to all the teachers in the school. So I was 16, I was about six months away from graduating and there was so much pressure. It was unbelievable. They were constantly pulling me out of class to counsel me and to tell me things like, you know, oh, you know, it's, it's a convent school. And they were trying to discourage girls from putting on makeup and being too havoc, you know, being too wild and going out with boys. But they were counseling me to do exactly that. They were like, oh, we think you should put on makeup. We think you should go get a boyfriend. You know, you know, lesbianism is unhealthy. And I would say things like, okay, when I get a boyfriend, I'll bring him, I'll be sure to bring him to come meet you, you know? <laughs> so I was sitting there with no information that I could find and just trying to defend myself, right, to the, the teachers and to um, the principal. And so that relationship had no chance of surviving. It was, you know, it was not a healthy environment. There was pressure from her parents, my parents, from the school, from the teachers, and we broke up very shortly after that. And, um, and I was depressed. I was probably clinically depressed for several years after that. And I, I remember after the breakup, I was this close to being one of those, you know, gay teen suicide statistics. Like it took something, and I don't even know what, that stopped me from going there um, and deciding to be here, you know. So I know that for me, that was a big moment, right? And so even today, a lot of my community building and organizing stems from that. Sorry, a little bit emotional. And so, <clears throat> and so a lot of it, a lot of my community, community building comes from a place of trying to really actually make it easier for folks who are younger, right? For folks who are coming behind us, you know? Yeah. And uh, so I don't know if you want me to continue. <laughs> I, I know that at some point you were also involved with the feminist movement back home, AWARE, and there was some problems with the law as well around some things. Do you want to share a little bit more about what happened? There? Sure. So um, at that time, I don't know what it is today, if, if you wanted to even sort of like, you know, publish a, 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 a newsletter, um, you needed to apply for permission from the Singapore government. Um, again, it goes back to their control. And so I had traveled, I had traveled to Europe. And um, when I was there, I very intentionally seeked out, I was 21, I had intentionally seeked out um, 
gay and lesbian places, you know, gay and lesbian bookstores, gay and lesbian bars, gay and lesbian community centers, right? Just to, you know, get a sense of the community that existed in, in these places. And so when I came back to Singapore, I brought back all these different publications in English that I could find and um, talked to friends and said, okay, look, this is what exists in the world. You know, how about we start some kind of a newsletter in Singapore, right, with local news, you know, and try and build community here. And so that was when I started this underground, you know, newsletter and called it Pink Triangle. Um, and uh, basically cut and paste from the different magazines that I got, you know, assigned different writing pieces to different friends and had them, you know, sort of write little articles and try to do it monthly. And we would, you know, and this is all underground, all illegal, and we would try and get people to read it, right? Sometimes we would pass it to friends. Sometimes we would stand on, you know, on Orchard Road at the street corners trying to pass it to, you know, strangers, just, just to get people to read it. And, you know, we would reach out if we saw someone who was, you know, maybe, you know, like might be butch or some, something, you know, it was like, hey, do you want to read this? And so that was the time when I learned about AWARE which is this feminist group. And it was the very first feminist group. And you know, this organization existed when there was none before, right? There's no, there was no youth support groups at that time, no women's support groups, no LGBTQ support groups that did not exist. And so I learned about this professor who was a, who, who taught at um, the National University of Singapore. So I went there to look for her and we, talked and had a really good conversation, found out that she was, that was how she introduced me to AWARE, but found out that she was, you know, sort of hosting this um, sort of discussion group on campus for, for women. And I, you know, shared my newsletter with her. And that was when she asked me to write for the group. And so that was when a lot of, you know, ideas were exchanged and I got involved with AWARE. And um, I think it was the next year, I want to say it was 1984 when AWARE hosted an event and um, we decided to put on this myth pageant, myth beauty pageant. You know, it's a spoof on the Miss Beauty pageant, but it was myth as in M-Y-T-H. And so it was instead of Miss Texas or Miss California, it was misunderstood or Miss, you know, appropriated or all these different things. So I was writing this play with a co-writer who was a part of AWARE and um, we presented the play, it was meant to be a spoof, it was really funny. And I think maybe a month or two after that event was when the co-writer, my co-writer for that play got arrested. And this was during the second round of arrests by the Singapore government. Um, I think they called it Operation Spectrum where they arrested about 11 people and it included um, artists and activists and teachers and lawyers. And um, I was going to school at College of Physical Education at that time. Um, I had a scholarship there and a month after I graduated, I left Singapore because that was when the heat, you know, from all of the underground organizing that I had been doing, the arrest of the co-writer, um, my parents were concerned about my safety. And that was when, once I graduated within a couple of weeks, I left the country. So, you know, I'm just thinking about your early kind of journey as a leader. And, you know, you talked about that turning point, that existential moment where you 
weren't sure if you were going to, if you were going to decide to live, but you decided to live and already the strength and courage was emerging, right? And, and it became this, this fiery uh, leadership, right? You're, you're, you're joining the feminist movement, you're doing all these things, and you weren't going to stay at a, in a place that wasn't cultivating your fire, right? I mean, I'm just, I'm just sort of putting things together. And so you decided to leave. That's right. Um, can you say a little bit more about that decision? Because I know there was a lot going on, but on a personal level, on a personal leadership level, what was happening for you in that moment where you, where you just, I, I have to leave? It was, it was definitely a number of things. I mean, there was the government arrest, which was very real. And, um, and with that second round of arrest, it really came much closer to me. Um, because this whole time I was like, I'm not involved in anything political, you know, it's because they were calling the people that they had detained um, Marxist conspirators and all these different kinds of terms. And I was like, you know, I'm so not involved in any of those politics, right? And, um, but by that second round, it was sort of, you know, getting, um, it, it, I was, it was instilling a lot of fear. It was instilling a lot of fear. And, and when I was doing my underground organizing for those couple of years, you know, in, in terms of LGBTQ organizing, I was pretty fearless. It was like, okay, I'm, you know, making these photocopies, you know, handing it here, handing that, please read this, come to this meeting. We would have weekly talks at my friend's home where we would talk about things like, you know, being, you know, where where can we be out? Where can we be ourselves? Where this was this was the mid '80s. This was when the police was still you know coming into there were there were bars right, especially for gay men. There were bars that they could meet at. They could hook up and you know they could, but it it all took place at night. It all took place in the dark, in the shadows, and it was all associated with a lot of shame and fear and guilt, right? And some of these men were married and, you know, and the police would come and occasionally raid these bars, arrest everyone, take the photos, publish their names in the newspapers the next day. So they were outing people and people were getting fired from their jobs, families were breaking up. So this was the, the, the sort of the, the social climate in terms of what was going on in Singapore at that time. And I was really, you know, it's like, no, I, I think I'm okay. I don't know where I got that idea from, but I think I'm okay. I don't think that I'm, you know, like I am not ashamed about this. I'm not going to feel guilty, even though, you know, Catholic guilt was, you know, deeply ingrained in me, but it's like, and I really do believe that as an LGBTQ community, like we need to be in a place where we can be in the sun, not just in the, in the night, in the shadows, right? Like as if what we were doing was wrong, you know? And so that was, that was really the key piece that, that I was really looking for. You know, I wanted to be a part of that kind of a community and it did not exist even though I had tried to organize it. And I was like, okay, this is it. You know, I didn't feel like I fit in. I, you know, didn't feel like there was a place for me. Um, and I would never have left Singapore if, if I had felt like I could be me without being ashamed and feeling guilty of just who I was, why would I leave? I would never have left Singapore. It was my, you know, it's my country. I have friends there. My family's there. You know, like there was no other reason for me to leave, right? Yeah. And so 
I just want everyone to really hear this this part that you believed in your fundamental okayness, right? You believed in that. And that was the impetus to like, I, I refuse to take this. And so you're going to go on this journey. So tell us more about what happened from there. Where, how did you end up in our city? So what happened actually was in, um, I think in 86, I had traveled with a friend to Thailand. And it was really interesting when we were um, there, we met up with this uh, white American woman who thought we were Asian Americans. And so we started talking and she said, hey, she had a house in Santa Cruz that she rents to these um, Asian Americans. They were lesbians and they were all going to school at um, UC Santa Cruz. And would I be interested in meeting them, you know, or writing them right back then, like you wrote letters, like for real. For people who don't understand, that's a snail mail where you put a stamp and you put it in the mailbox. Okay, that's in that's case right. you don't know what that is. And they would get the letter like two weeks later, you know, and then they would decide to write a letter back. And then you would get that letter a few weeks later. Um, and so from that exchange, I started corresponding with those Asian American lesbians in that household. And we stayed in contact, like just writing letters with updates and things like that back and forth for a couple of years. And so when I um, decided to leave, I actually flew into New York and um, traveled in the US for about a year, but always knowing that I wanted to, you know, my destination was always San Francisco um, because I had heard about this Asian American lesbian community that was thriving in San Francisco. And so when I finally got here, and you know, found that community, I was, I was ecstatic. It was like, oh my God, yes, it exists, it's here, right? And there were a number of us who were all immigrants. And so you know, we definitely got together and started talking and bonding. I was involved in the, what was it called? It was called the Lesbian Dynamics of Color Conference. It was held in San Francisco and it was basically lesbians and bisexual coming together to talk about race. And um, so I was actively involved in organizing that conference and became uh, involved with uh, what's now called API Cutesy. It's the Asian Pacific Islander queer women transgender community. Um, that organization also sort of went through different name changes through those 20 some years. And um, so I was involved with that. I was a speaker at a couple of those uh, conferences that we had. Um, and then in, I think it was nine, it was 80, 88, 89. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm not, I'm now in the nineties. In about 93, 1993, I co-founded with um, a couple of other folks, um, an organization. Well, not, it's not an organization. It's just a group, Asian Lesbian Network. And we were networking with lesbians in Asia. And that lasted for about a year. And then Mabel, who's a really, really old friend of mine from, you know, when we were in school together, I knew her when she was 13 and we played basketball together. She moved to San Francisco. And when that happened, she, myself and another person decided to start Sambal because it's like, hey, there were a handful of us, right? Let's, let's, you know, and we would always get together and talk about home and food and family and immigration and all those kinds of issues. And so that was when we started Sambal, the three of us. And uh, Sambal stands for Singaporean and Malaysian bisexuals and lesbians. Mm -hmm. and, and I have fond memories of 
being a part of that group in those early coming out years, struggling to cook, even though I didn't know how to, it's a potluck, monthly potluck. But I need people to appreciate this because you were just coming in as, as an immigrant and already you were jumping into organizing, really owning that identity and going for it and taking leadership around all these different parts of your community. And, and I just... I don't know if people can appreciate what that means to move countries in the way that you did and to immediately jump into organizing. Can you tell us what that was about? Because that's incredible leadership. Sure. I mean, I think some of it was definitely informed by my first year in the U.S. You know, I was undocumented at that time and um, really depended on people's kindness and generosity towards me. And, you know, when I left, I really just had my backpack and, and I left, you know, I had very little financial resources. I had the clothes on my back and that was all I had. And so when I was traveling throughout the U.S., it, you know, it was strangers that stepped up to help me, strangers that came up and said, you know, I have a, a spare bedroom in my home. You can basically sleep in my home for a month, you know, or I have a couch and you can stay in my couch for two days, right? And I was really taking that opportunity to, and, and I was really hungry. Just to say, I was really hungry to be in LGBTQ spaces, right? So as I traveled, I went to the bookstores, I went to the community centers, I went to the bars and the clubs and like every every city that I went to, I went, I went and explored these places. And so when I got to San Francisco, I, you know, I wanted to plug in into and be a part community. You know, I, it's that sense of, I think we all have that sense of wanting to belong to something, right? And so that was the one community that was so close to my heart, you know, I mean, API QT still remains like really, really close to my heart, that community, you know, and, um, and I just really wanted to belong somewhere, you know, yeah. I, I had just left a country that didn't, didn't feel like it wanted me. And, and I left so that I would not, you know, be detained. I found this community that was open and welcoming, you know, yeah. and so I dove right into it. And, and, and just started organizing. It's like, okay, you know, there were a few immigrant voices, not a whole lot. Okay, where are we? Let's find us, let's connect, what can we do? Okay, you know, let's create a space where we can gather, right? So that was where that sambal potluck idea came from because, you know, the three of us were trying to figure out like, okay, what can we, what, what is it that we think we can do that we can sort of create a structure around that people would come right on a regular basis? Like, okay, we had a meeting, would people come? No, but if we have a potluck, Singaporeans and Malaysians will come to a potluck because we will come and eat, right? Yes, we will. <laughs> Makan is very That's important. That's right. That's right. And at that time, there were not very many, you know, Singaporean Malaysian restaurants that existed. So if you wanted to cook, if you wanted to eat food from home, you had to cook it, right? And believe me, when I was growing up, I, I could be found anywhere but in the kitchen, right? Um, but we really wanted the potluck to bring us together, you know, and we wanted the, which, which is why we had to cook you know, food from home. It's not like you could just make, you know, spaghetti and meatballs and bring that, you know, you would not be allowed into the potluck. I would be excommunicated. I exactly. Think, <laughs> so yeah, and so people came and that potluck actually, you know, it went, went on for like a good 10 years actually. Yeah. Yeah, and that was what birthed the film, right? That was what birthed the film, Samba Balachan in San Francisco. So uh, 
when you say home, and I re recall this from the interview from that I found online before we met, you said th this particular phrase, quest for home. And that's that actually stuck with me, and and I've and it, and you know these these images and these things they they stick in the, the subconscious mind, and it's come up in conversation for me, whenever I think about the way I had to leave home for similar reasons, um, and so leadership for you went from believing in your fundamental okayness to this quest for home, right, and so. So tell me more about Samba Balacha and the film because okay, you were you there was this this quest for home. You found a sense of belonging, and then this film emerged. So, so tell us more about that. So Samba Balacha in San Francisco grew out of this in line with the sambal potlucks, right? We were having our sambal potlucks, and we were constantly talking about back home. You know, back home, this was happening because most of us had family still in, in Singapore and Malaysia. And most of us, most of our friends were still there, right? But we were all trying to build a home here in the US in the San Francisco Bay Area, you know, concurrently. And so we talked about home all of the time. And for me, it, there was a lot of longing in that, you know, loss and longing. And so, um, and I was uh, at San Francisco State University at that time and, and um, was, um, working on a film, which was my uh, thesis um, film. And of course it was about being Singaporean. You know, I, Mabel is in it, um, a friend, DP, that, you know, sort of began, the friendship began with the potlucks is in it. And I, I'm also in it, but initially I was, I did not intend to be in the film. I had wanted another friend of mine to be in it, but the, you know, there was a lot of fear, you know, there was a lot of um, fear and um, shame around it. And, you know, there were questions about, well, would this film screen in Singapore? I said, of course, I would want the film to screen in Singapore. I would want the film to screen everywhere. Right. So, you know, it's like, okay, are, is everyone ready to be completely out in that way? Right. And so she actually had to step away from the project. And so that was when I made the decision to include myself and my story in that film, in that documentary. And so really it was to look at, you know, being immigrants to the US, how is it that we're trying to create a home here and navigating that process, right? Like, okay, in Singapore, these were the issues we were dealing with, you know, um, homophobia. You know, one of them DP is Eurasian, you know, so dealing with racism in Singapore, um, you know, sexism in Singapore. Okay, we're in the US, the grass is not necessarily greener on this side, right? And so, okay, we're dealing with very intense racism here, you know, anti-immigrant sentiment, um, all these different issues. And so it was really about how are we navigating all of these challenges, you know, in both places at the same time with our family, with our parents, with the extended family, with friends, the politics that's involved, all of that, right? And so all that is in the film. And, and it was really interesting because when I was making the film, most of the folks at the potluck did not want their faces in the documentary. And so I had to be really creative about, okay, how do I include this community, this very vibrant community, and yet not show our faces, right? And so the way I dealt with that was, you know, there's a scene where everyone comes in 
you know, they, they open the door, they take off their shoes, which is what we always do, right? We enter a home and take off our shoes. And so we, I just had legs coming in, taking off shoes and, you know, another set of legs come in, you know, taking off shoes just to, and show all the different pairs of shoes to indicate the people. And then, you know, the camera, we saw the food all laid out beautifully and we saw hands getting food and we could hear people talking, but we never ever, you know, out anyone or show their faces um, so that we, you know, people could be safe, right? So that, so that movie came out and, and, and I think it's significant for people to hear some of the things you're sharing because it was not safe to have your face on there. So the courage and, and what it took for you to even have your face in that, in that film, these other two friends, Mabel and DP, um, that was revolutionary in itself. And the film was revolutionary because it, it was telling a story that was completely untold, silent, um, and really erased. And so you were trying to really be countercultural. You were really, like, this was a revolution here in, in terms of film. I mean, I'm, I'm being really honest when I look at Singaporean history and it's in queer Singaporean history, this was really significant, your film. Um, and uh, from what I from what I've seen, you know, people have been very curious about that film back home. But of course, uh, why don't you share more about what happened from there? Like, how did Singaporeans or the Singapore government react to this film? Tell us more about the story. Sure. And so that film was completed in 1997. And the following year, the Singapore International Film Festival approached me and said, hey, you know, um, we are interested in screening your film. We'd like to invite you to the film festival. It's in May. Um, what do you think? So I said, sure. You know, and they said, okay, we have to run it by the Singapore Film Censorship Board. I was like, okay. You know, and I have to say, um, just to back up a little bit in the story, when I was editing the film, I was, so this was film film. I shot in 16 millimeter and I had to edit on six plates because, you know, back then there was no such thing as desktop you know, nonlinear editing, it did not exist. And um, I remember editing the film and thinking, okay, there's a section where DP talks about racism that they face in Singapore. And I, my vision was to layer that with um, National Day Parade footage in Singapore, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and and I thought to myself, you know, if I do that, you know, I really, really think that it's going to make it really hard for this film to screen in Singapore. And, and so I really sat and struggled with that for a good two weeks, right? Like, okay, do I want to self-censor myself, you know, so in the hopes that this film will screen in Singapore? Or do I want to go with my creative vision, right? And it could potentially be censored or banned, but, you know, and, and, or I could have censored myself and it, maybe it's still banned, right? Like, you know, so there's no way to know there were all these different options. And so I was like, I always like, what should I do? What should I do? And in the end, I decided, you know what, I'm going to stick to my creative vision. I'm going to, you know, make it exactly how I want to make it, even though I know that it could potentially lead to, you know, like censorship down the line. So I did that. So come the next year, 1998, and the Singapore Film Festival basically said, okay, we have to run it by the government. So I was like, okay. So we wait and we wait and we wait and we don't hear anything from the Singapore authorities until after the film festival is over. And then I said, so what happened? So then 
the Singapore Film Festival checked in with the Singapore authorities and then they sent a fax with the like film is banned stamped on it and I was like wow you know I was and, and that year they actually screened Fire um, which is this trilogy of films by this um, South Asian uh, filmmaker. Um, so it's okay from other countries, but not they, Singapore. Other right. Asian countries is fine, but not, okay, got it. Yeah, they screen Happy Together by Wong Kar Wai about mm-hmm. these two gay Chinese, you know, Chinese, Hong Kong Chinese men who, who basically uh, moved to Argentina and, you know, their relationship there. And Fire, just to let folks know, Fire is about these two young South Asian women who basically, you know, fall in love with each other and run off, right? Um, and so they screened all these films. They screened Hanging Gardens, which is this Canadian, gay Canadian film, but they banned mine. Mine is yeah. a 25-minute documentary, you know, and it was banned. Yeah. So I was upset. I was, but I think a, a small part of me expected it because, you know, I and I was thinking that it's probably the combination of the LGBTQ issues as well as the racism, like, really pointing out the racism that exists, which is a big no-no in Singapore, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and filmmakers and friends were saying, you know, ah, it's a badge of honor, you know, it's 1990, 1998, like whose films gets banned, you know, in this day and age, right? So I was like, fine, you know, but I was really frustrated. There were some friends who really wanted to screen it in Singapore. And so we did a couple of underground screenings at people's homes, but there was real fear. There was real fear that the authorities would find out about these screenings, that they would come barging in, arrest everyone in the home. And, you know, so that, I mean, it screened a couple of times and then that stopped, right? I, so I think there's two things going on. I mean, so you're thinking it's not just that it, the content, the, the, the queer content that got it banned, it was also that it brought up the question of racism and Sing- it's happening in Singapore, right, with DP. And there's the other piece, there was, well, you said you put together the National Day Parade next to some other scene. And so it's a critique of the government at that time. And I think it was the critique of the government that that was really the thing here. Would you say that was that's true? Probably, I think so. I mean, I think that there is a critique very intentionally so of the Singapore government. And there is also a very intentional critique of the United States government as well in that film, right? Because DP talks about racism that exists in Singapore, and then DP talks about racism that exists in the United States. And when DP talks about racism that exists in the United States, there's images of Clinton. And I mean, that was a democratic president, right? You know, so it's a in the best of times. So it was a critique of both governments in, the, in a very similar way around racism, right? And I think that, you know, the late 90s or the mid to late 90s, I think some people call those years the dark ages in Singapore because th- that was when censorship was at its highest. There was a lot going on underground in Singapore, but um, not talked about. And, and I was home in 2000 because I was living here right up to 1999, moved home in 2000. And, you know, I experienced the police raids, um, the high levels of censorship. Um, you know, my job was at risk many times. Even doing HIV prevention at a queer event led to police coming in and me getting into trouble. I, I, you know, there were so many levels of fear for me. And then when I, and I, when I think about your film, 
and how Singaporeans at the time, even queer Singaporeans at the time were, were sort of thinking about your film because word had gone around like, oh, there's this film called Sambal Balachan, there's this filmmaker in San Francisco, right? There's th this film exists. Um, people also talked about the government and how the government banned it. And it almost became this dichotomy for queer Singaporeans that I was hanging out with. The conversation was, if you appreciated this film and if you were in support of this film, you were somehow betraying the country and the government and you were not a loyal Singaporean. And in order to be accepted in Singapore, you had to reject this film Otherwise, it made queer Singaporeans look bad. It looks like we're anti-government, right? So, so it became this, you either had to not like the film and be more accepted back home or be on the other side completely and, and betray the country. And so this film became that in conversation. And, and I wonder what you, what you think of it or whether or not you would have a response to that. I mean, a lot of years have passed, about 20 years has passed since, since, since having these conversations. But what do you think? Well, you know, I think that many times what we negotiate are all really complex issues, right? But I think that very often they get broken down into, you know, they become polarized. It's either this or that, you know, as if somehow you can't be both, you know? And, and like I said earlier, I mean, I would not have left Singapore if, because why would I, right? I mean, I'm from there, you know, and everything I know is there or was there. And if I could have, you know, if, if I could, you know, be like, be an out lesbian filmmaker, queer women of color running queer women of color media arts project in Singapore, I would, I would totally not have left, right? Going back to the issue of the censorship in the late, mid, mid 90s, late 90s, I think there was a huge uh, brain drain in Singapore at that time. I know a lot of people who left. In fact, my sister also left and she's straight, you know, but she left in, I think it was 99 and she moved to France with her husband. And a lot of people left. And I know that after that happened, after Singapore lost a lot of folks, that was when they, I think, had to reconsider how strict they were like in terms of control. And also at that time, you know, that was when internet was growing, there was more email exchanges. And, you know, there was a, I think they, they were realizing that there was only so much they could control on, on the worldwide webs, you know. Um, but going back to that question of being loyal to the country, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that the film got put into this either or place because I think it would have been a really great conversation. I think it would have been a really great conversation to have it screen and have that conversation, right? About what's going on in Singapore. You know, where are we with these things? Because I think being queer for a very long time, I don't know if it still is in Singapore, for, but for a very long time was always thought of as a Western decadent thing, something that was imported from the West, right? And, you know, to really take that opportunity to have these conversations. You know, I think that would have been really great, actually. I think, so. yeah, of course it would have been. It's, yeah, it was unfortunate that it got placed in this strange dichotomy. And I think in the meantime, though, in the last 20 years, you've continued your activism here in the San Francisco Bay Area and you've developed, you know, you've founded Quack Map and, and really have been a contributing, just incredible, prominent 
queer leader, I'd say here, right? Um, and so many young queer folks have really benefited from the programs you've set up, the leadership development. So tell us more about what has happened since, because obviously you moved on from that film and developed other things. So yes, so actually that film launched, I think, a whole path for me. What happened was Sambal Balachan in San Francisco was on the International Film Festival circuit for several years. And I traveled with it to certain places when I could. And during that time, I found that I was among one handful of queer women of color filmmakers in all of these different film festivals, whether they were LGBTQ film festivals or people of color film festivals or human rights film festivals. I was among one small handful. And so the question for me was, where are we, right? Where are the filmmakers? Because if we're not making films of our lives, who will? You know, we're going to wait until one day Hollywood gets it right. I mean, when is that going to be, right? And so it was with that thought that was the catalyst for starting Quack Map because when I came back to San Francisco, as a filmmaker, because of fundraising and all of the different parts that's involved, I can maybe make a film once every five years at the most, right? And if I can teach filmmaking, right, then that many more folks can be nurtured as filmmakers and get our voices out there and really shift the field in that way, you know? And so that was what I did. So I started teaching filmmaking workshops, started QuackMap in 2000. And since then there have been, we now have, I think four, over 450 films that have been created through our filmmaker training program that are all, you know, created by queer and trans BIPOC people, you know, black indigenous people of color, filmmakers, right? And nurturing their leadership in that way. And then developing, you know, QuackMap basically presented our very first film festival. We started presenting screenings. And so we presented our very first Queer Women of Color Film Festival in 2005. And as a platform to showcase these films, right? Because, you know, and the whole film industry is very misogynistic and racist and you know which is why there's like oscar so white or documentary so white and which is why the academy a motion picture is really trying to increase the people of color members in it right and studios and networks are really trying to give more work to women much more awareness now uh, around women and women of color um so, you know, that's a whole, that's a whole thing by itself, but um, working in that. And, you know, when I first started the workshops, I, I knew there was a need, but I wasn't sure if people would respond. And, you know, again, this was like in 2000. And so I put up flyers in different places and it turned out that, you know, I, there was a waiting list for two and a half years. So, yeah, so that was the birth of QuackMap and it's, we are 20 this year. So congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think many people are proud of QuackMap and many people have benefited from QuackMap. And I don't know of a queer or a queer person, at least queer woman identified um, person of color, um, BIPOC, who hasn't heard of QuackMap because I think it's on the lips of everyone like, oh, film, okay, QuackMap, right? It, it, it's, it's given such visibility to our stories, you know, and it's given us a chance, a platform to really tell stories that just go unheard. Um, and so I think the visibility has been healing for us. And I think it's made a lot of progress. I think finally marriage equality happened. And, and now I think trans rights are at the forefront. So I think, I think Co-op Map has sort of 
made it more, um, I think it's made a huge contribution. That's my personal opinion. It's, it's been great. Thank um, you. And just to add to that, I mean, it's like, you know, right. I, I'm really glad that right now the, the industry is really recognizing all of these things, right? Like, um, you know, Ford Foundation just released this um, Beyond Inclusion report that they've been working on and QuackMap is mentioned in there, but they're really talking about, okay, you know, we really need to see films that are helmed by and written by, um, by women, by women of color, by queer and trans people of color, by uh, folks with disabilities, right? Like we need to be in those leadership positions um, and not just have stories that are constantly being told by white men, you know, writers, because they're the writers and they're the producers. And so those are the films that get um, greenlit and made. Um, which is really awesome that, you know, that's really happening right now. And to say that that was our philosophy 20 years ago. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, like you said, you know, to get our voices out there to, you know, make sure that, you know, as, as part of public education so that, you know, if we have 10 films about what it means to be, you know, queer API immigrant, that no one can say, you know, like it, it, it dispels the, the stereotype, hopefully, right? That no one can yeah. say, oh, you know, it's just this one thing. No, we've got 10 films about that experience, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that's the power of film, you know, the fact that it, it makes us think, um, but that it really makes us feel. Yeah, and I think one of the most powerful things, you know, any attending any of these uh, QuackMap events that, that you've put out over the years is, how people feel at these events and, and the multi-dimensionality of our experiences on film, something that we don't get to see in regular media, right? And, and but, but I mean, we're seeing it more and more now, but, but 20 years ago, no, nothing. And so I think you've really been a trailblazer and, and taken leadership and carved something for our community. And so I'm really very grateful about that. I'm very happy and very Thank proud you. that it's a fellow Singaporean, you know, uh, with a Piratican, fellow Piratican heritage. That's right. Uh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so parallel to all that, what, you know, I think Singapore also has changed in, in the last 20 years, right? The, uh, Lee Kuan Yew finally passed. Uh, Lee Sien Lung is now the prime minister, we have a, a, a president uh, who is a Malay Muslim. I mean, it was, it's just been, it's a new, it's a new country. Um, and it's, you know, I think something like more millionaires per square foot now than Switzerland. Um, and the, but the, the question of homosexuality being criminalized is still there. Um, and there've been, uh, you know, Supreme Court cases around it that have failed um, and so 377A that still criminalizes exists, um, censorship exists. Um, I don't think that media that portrays anything that is same sex or same gender is um, allowed if it's seen as positive. It has to be not too positive for it to be shown. Um, so that, so I mean, things have opened up, but there are these restrictions that are really strange that are still put there. And so civil liberties have opened up a little bit. There's Pink Dot as a movement. Um, and I see things, you know, I, I don't hear about police raids anymore, thank goodness. 
Um, and I think in the counseling world that I was a part of, and I did a lot of activism within the field of mental health there, that has opened up too. I think the ethics around it have really are a lot better. Um, the Ministry of Education has changed its stance a lot. It's gone from, you know, how it used to treat you to saying it's a gang related issue. So it's a disciplined gang. So it's, so if you're butch, you're in a butch gang. And so we need to treat it like a gang thing, like a cult thing. Um, to, I think, now taking on the ethics of, you know, whatever psychotherapists are supposed to take on, which is um, gay affirmative type stuff. Um, so I think, I think things have opened up, but they're not quite there. Um, and your film finally was filmed in our homeland. I mean, it was shown in our homeland. I was so relieved and happy. So tell us more about that. You know, I, I, yeah, that was, that was amazing. I have to say. Um, so a couple of months ago, the Singapore International Film Festival came to me and said, hey, you know, we heard from, you know, another filmmaker that your film hasn't screened in Singapore. And I'm like, yeah, it's because it's been banned for 22 years. And so they said, well, we would love to screen it for, you know, our New Waves program, which is the pre-festival program. So I said, sir. And um, so I, you know, they asked what had happened before. So I let them know that it was banned in 98 and the next year the um, film festival, the Singapore Film Festival tried to get it, get the ban lifted in 99 and, you know, um, but, you know, that, that, that didn't happen. So they said, okay, well, they'll try, right? And so, and in the meantime, the, you know, Film Censorship Board now has a new name and, you know, it merged with another government authority. So um, they got back to me about 10 days before the event was scheduled to happen and said, yay, we just heard from the authorities and your, your film has been approved for screening. So I was ecstatic. I thought the ban had been lifted, right? And so, because the conversation was to have the film screen in the New Waves program and also have it included in the actual main film festival program, which is um, late November, December. So we said, okay, you know, is it also being screened in November for the main program? And then that was when we got more information. So that was when I learned that it was not, the ban had not been lifted. Basically the Singapore government had made a one-time exception to the ban so that it was allowed to screen at the New Waves program. And however, if, you know, the film festival wanted to screen my film for the main program, they would have to resubmit the film and make a case for it all over again, right? And of course, you know, no one has time for, you know, all of this rigmarole, right? And bureaucracy. And so they, they let me know that they'll only be screening it in the New Waves program, um, unfortunately. And that was when I got the first memo that, um, because you know they had asked me to participate in this Q and A. It was not a live Q and A, but a recorded Q and A. Um, that that so outlining what were the things I could and could not talk about in the memo. Right? It's like okay, you were I, I was to steer away, steer clear of mentioning any mention of LGBTQ issues, matters, and campaign. So I was like, okay, I'm not quite sure what that means, but I'm just going to leave it for now. And then the day before the day of the film festival, I got another memo basically saying, okay, you know, here's more clarity on the issue. You can talk about your own personal experiences as an LGBTQ person. However, you know, I was not to advocate for like LGBTQ, you know, like campaign or issues. I was like, 
mm, okay, but you know, like, all right, so we'll try, right? I mean, and I wanted to be very respectful because they obviously worked really hard. They received a lot of phone calls. They received a lot of email communications from the authorities about, you know, the screening of the film. They were very, very nervous about the Q&A. They wanted to know what questions were being asked, who the moderator was, all those things, right? And um, so I wanted to be very respectful of the fact that they had put so much work into it. And then, um, so then for the Q&A, so the screening goes well, you know, it, it was held in person at the Oldham Theater, um, which typically seats about over 130 people, but because of COVID protocol, they only um, accepted about 33 audience members. My mom was there, so she was very excited to be there for the Singapore oh, premiere. Oh, wonderful. It was very exciting. Um, a friend attended as well. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I heard it went really well. They introduced my mother um, at wow. the very beginning. Yeah, and she, you know, she's 79. And you know, I think it's really great for people to hear that here's a 79 year old woman who is supportive of her daughter who made this film that was banned because, you know, for different reasons, you know, being queer and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, so for the Q&A, the moderator starts with the first question, like, so, you know, the theme is about going places, like what made you, you know, leave Singapore and go to the United States? And I'm like, um, okay, sure, I'm happy to tell you the story, but I'm going to have to talk about LGBTQ issues, right? So it was really, I don't know, I don't think the moderator got the same memo. I don't know. But anyways, you know, I'm, the Q&A is supposed to be uploaded to the festival website sometime this week. And I, you know, I said, feel, I wrote them and said, the moderator started out with this question. I said, feel free to edit, you know, cause you know, I don't want them to get into trouble. Out of the new waves program, my film was the only one that received a, a restricted 21 rating. All the other ones got, you know, one other film got an NC-17, the others were all PG or PG-13 and mine was the only one that got an R21, right? Which is, you know, it's like, okay, you know, if you're going to watch this film, basically the government wanted to be sure that you had already sort of, you know, like your mind was developed, you had your own perspective on the issue, right? It was not meant to be influencing any young person, so to speak, right? Yeah. And, and so, I mean, it sounds like things have opened up to the point where it's, it's no longer no altogether and get out. It's no and okay, here's a little bit. And, and I think even Pink Dot, you're only allowed to do it on a, um, there are restricted zones for free speech. Um, and right. so, uh, I mean, it is progress. I mean, it's, it's better than being completely abandoned and not, I mean, it's been 22 years. I think it needs to be shown in our homeland and it got shown in our homeland. And I was so happy to hear that. Me too. So congratulations. Me too. Thank you. I, would, yeah. I have to say, you know, I, I had hoped that it would be completely lifted. I was not surprised when they were like, uh, no, not quite, but it's a one-time, you know, exception. I was like, great. I'll take the one-time exception. You know, it's like, a Singapore premiere 22 years later I'm it's you know yeah, yeah. well I, I was breathing a sigh of relief for us <laughs> as a community and I was really happy so I mean where do you see things going from here your you know your leadership your career uh film what's what's next for you what's next wow that's a great question um well, I am currently working on a, my first feature length documentary. Um, it's about Jewel Gomez, who is um, an award-winning writer, 
poet, playwright. Um, so we were supposed to film a little bit more in March, but that was when Shelter in Place hit. And so that has been postponed um, probably to next year. I need to do a little bit more filming. Um, we are, we started editing. So the, the main parts, you know, the, the, most of the interviews are in place. It's really, we need to get a few more visuals and um, we need to get it, the music to be scored. Um, yeah, so that's the next big thing that's happening. And, you know, on, in terms of sort of the everyday work, you know, continuing clock map, um, you know, we pivoted our film festival online this year yeah. uh, because of COVID. And, um, you know, usually the number of people who can view it is limited to the number of seats in the theater, uh, which is usually about 350 seats. And we always turn people away. And this year, because it was virtual, we had over a thousand households joined us for each screening, um, which is really awesome. And people joined us from, you know, from Alaska to Hawaii to Puerto Rico and Peru and um, all the way to New Zealand, you know? So, uh, so that's actually really exciting. And, you know, just trying to make sure that filmmaking, you know, now that we're online, right? Like how do we teach filmmaking, but not perpetuate the inequities that exist, you know, because if, if we, cause you know, the whole point of, of um, Quack Maps filmmaker training program was really to demystify the whole thing, right? It's, you know, as a participant, you just come to the workshop, you show up, we have equipment, we have internet, we have cameras and computers, we have filmmaker mentors, we have crisis counselors, we have food, we have space, we have, you know, natural sunlight, you know, like to support you in your creative vision, right? And um, pivoting that online, how, how do we not, like I said, you know, how do we not perpetuate the inequities if people don't have fast internet at home, if they don't have a robust enough computer or laptop that can support Zoom as well as a video editing software simultaneously, right? Um, so, you know, these are things that we're constantly figuring out. And, um, and then I hope to retire real soon, actually. But <laughs> Wow. I, I love it that you're still fighting the good fight as a leader, you know, you, and, that from, and you're still looking at inequities and you're still looking at making this accessible. <laughs> and um, it's like filmmaking for the people, right? That's it's, right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, I, I was pointing to all my white hairs, you know, that, <laughs> that are taking over. Um, but no, really filmmaking as, you know, and, and filmmaking, why filmmaking? Filmmaking because it is such an expensive medium, right? Yeah. Um, the training that you have to do with it. You know, film schools are actually more competitive than med schools, medical programs. Um, they're extremely expensive, very competitive. And um, not to say that, you know, like, there are many schools that offer a really good film program, but it's a very expensive art form. It requires a lot of energy, right? Getting people together for that effort, um, even if they're doing it for free. So all those reasons, you know, the, the fact that, and it's very much based on my own personal experience. Also, I wanted to be a filmmaker. I think I was 15. I was having an argument with my girlfriend at that time. And and I remember popping out of that argument thinking, hey, this might make an interesting film one day, you know? <laughs> and then I popped back into my very dramatic argument. Um, but, you know, my family was very um, poor working class and, you know, did not have the resources for me to do that because I would have to go overseas to study film. Um, 
So, you know, I held on to that dream and, you know, only when I came to the United States, then I finally um, enrolled um, at the San Francisco State University program. I was 30 at that time, right? When I finally um, started my um, full-time film training. Before that, I had been doing a lot of night classes and, um, you know, crewing on, you know, different, for different producers. And, um, you know, it, it, it's really about, not it's so right now it's you know a lot of people use film as a tool as a social justice tool which is awesome right it's like the content whatever the content or the subject or the topic of the film is it can highlight whatever that issue is and at Quackmet we're looking at film as a movement right it's about who's making the film it's about who's in front of the camera who's behind the camera whose story who's telling the story, as well as what's the story that's being told, right? And so for us, nurturing the maker, you know, the fact that our film festival, the, the main criteria for accepting films into our film festival is that the maker has to be an LGBTQ uh, woman of color or non-conforming, non-binary, transgender person of color, right? Most of the film festivals, it's not that way. Like even for Frameline, which, is, which runs the SF uh, LGBT film festival, it's like, as long as the content is about queer content, even if the maker is someone who is straight, they will accept it. And for us, it's all about the maker, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because if I make a film about my parents, they're straight, you know? One of them is white, you know? My step-parent, you know, my stepfather was white, right? So it's really about who we're nurturing, their leadership skills that we're nurturing and allowing them to make anything that they, that's meaningful for them, right? Yeah. So I, I wanna round up the narrative because there've been so many themes that showed up. We started off with the existential moment, right? Where I am okay, that I value my okayness. And then you left home. And then there was a quest for home. Those are your words, quest for home. And you found a sense of belonging here, um, but there was, a longing for home. Now, 22 year, years later, that film has been shown at home and you've got all these, you, you, I mean, your career continues, your leadership continues. I guess my question is, do you feel like home is here? Because you're, you're continuing to cultivate home for others, not, not just yourself. Do you feel like that quest for home is over? Is it, is it still there? I mean, I, it's just an open-ended question there. That's a really great, great question. I think that on some days there is still that sense of longing that's there. Um, Less of a loss, I have to say. Longing still exists, but less of a loss. Um, My mother moved back to Singapore. She, you know, she was in Kazakhstan for a good 15 years and then she moved to Spain for a good six to eight years and finally just moved back to Singapore maybe three years ago. Um, But that sense of home, I would say, is more based here in San Francisco now. You know, I've been here more than three decades now. I've been here longer than I've been in Singapore at this point. Um, And I have to say there was a time when I was really considering actually moving back to Singapore. I think a bunch of us had that conversation. I'm not sure if you were there for that. Like, okay, what would it take you know, for us to move back to Singapore, right? Um, And I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, for me, 
especially living in San, in San Francisco, in California, where we, you know, it's, there are elected officials who are LGBTQ, you know, there are teachers in schools who are LGBTQ, you know, who are out, who are, you know, it's, it's not, you know, they, they're, it's not something, it's not associated with shame and guilt and, you know, no one can blackmail them because of their sexual orientation. You know what I mean? It's like, that is just a part of who you are, you know? And, and I think that that conversation then about moving back home, you know, was sort of informed by that, like, okay, is there that ability to be all of who you are? If you want to be a firefighter and you're out as queer or if you, you know, like whatever your job might be, right? Um, that your family's okay with you, you know? Um, so I think at this point, it's probably feeling more at home here um, in San Francisco. I wouldn't say necessarily in all of the United States, but definitely in San Francisco. Well, I'll have to say thank you for cultivating a sense of home for so many of us, including me. I'm so grateful and you are a role model to me. You're an incredible leader for us, the Singaporean queer community. I think, you know, I think this story has to be told. <laughs> and so thank you so much for doing this with me. Cheryl, I just want to appreciate that. Thank you for listening to the Global Citizenship and Equity Podcast. If you liked this episode, please visit us at www.leadingwithconsciousness.com or subscribe and leave me a review wherever you listen to your podcasts.